Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Father, a Son, and Two Questions. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 6th, 2012. When Walker Brown was born in 1996, his parents, Ian and Joanna, knew something was wrong. Seven months later, Walker was diagnosed with CFC, cardiofaciocutaneous syndrome, an extraordinarily rare genetic mutation that doesn't, didn't even have a name until 1986 or a genetic test until 2006. Estimates vary, but as few as 300 people in the world have CFC. As the months unfolded, it became clear that Walker was profoundly disabled. As a baby, he cried nonstop for hours. He has the signature facial dysmorphia of CFC. He never sleeps through the night, and he can't talk. Eating difficulties necessitated a feeding tube. Significant heart and skin irregularities have compromised his health. And worst of all, perhaps, Walker would hit, bite, and scratch himself. Before long, his medical record was six inches thick. The first geneticist that Ian Brown met told him that there were only eight other cases in the world. He writes in his memoir, Eight. It wasn't possible. Surely we had been blasted out to an unknown galaxy. Brown later learned that CFC was caused by a random mutation in three genes. He describes himself as a fairly conventional atheist, so he understood the implications. The scientific definition of evolutionary success, of a successful random mutation, is one that allows the organism to survive and reproduce. Nature alone would not have allowed his son to live. By the judgment of a geneticist, Walker was what she called a deleterious effect of nature. Brown didn't resent the geneticist who used those exact words. What he resented was the idea that his son's life was reduced to a typing error in a three billion long chain of letters to one dinky nucleotide. And so he asks, what is the meaning of Walker's life to himself, his family, and society? Is he no more than a deleterious effect of genetics? Ian Brown's memoir, The Boy in the Moon, tells how he's tried to answer that question. The book has won numerous prestigious awards in Canada, where Brown lives. The New York Times named it one of the top five nonfiction books for 2011. I myself can't remember reading a book that's so carefully crafted, so brutally honest, so tenderly written, and so life-affirming. The book describes the upheaval in his family and marriage, the sleep deprivation, the emotional exhaustion and financial worries, 
He battles the bureaucratism of public schools, hospitals, and government agencies, most of which are staffed by competent and well-meaning people, but which nevertheless standardize one-size-fits-all protocols that are guaranteed to stymie the many. The Internet made connections with other CFC families possible, and Brown visits them to trade stories. When Walker turned 11, they faced the agony and the necessity of placing him in a group home. He writes, Life with him and life without him. Both were unthinkable. And aggravating it all were the chronic feelings of guilt, shame, and failure that haunt parents of the profoundly disabled. <clears throat> One of the many people that Brown met was the fellow Canadian Jean Vanier, who in 1964 started the first Larch home for the severely handicapped. Larch is the French word for shelter. Today there are over 100 Larch homes in 30 countries. The purpose of these specifically Christian group homes, says Vanier, is not to normalize the disabled according to the standards of society or to solve all their problems, which is never likely to happen, but rather to celebrate them as sacred gifts of God who have their own gifts to offer us. Brown first visited the Larch community in Montreal near his home. He then traveled to meet Vanier at the original Larch home in France. For several days he lived among the disabled, ate with them, talked with the staff, and experienced their community. It made a profound impact on him. During his interviews with Vanier, Vanier insisted that whenever we meet a severely handicapped person, they want to ask us just two questions. First, do you consider me human? And second, do you love me? When we meet a profoundly disabled person, says Vanier, we go through several stages in our relationship with them. We probably begin with fear or pity at their appearance and behavior. Perhaps we then progress to help them in some way. Maybe we even grow to respect them for who they are, although at this stage we still consider them less than normal. <clears throat> Finally, says Vanier, if we meet the disabled on their own ground, we behold them with wonderment and thanksgiving. We embrace them as fully human and love them for who they are. We can even see the face of God in them, for God uses the weak to confound the strong. Brown describes the many things that he's learned from Walker like the difference between a genuine problem and a petty complaint, the sweetness of a single day, and precious time with his wife and daughter. But Walker took him to even deeper places. He writes, I've begun simply to love him as he is, because I've discovered I can, because we can be who we are, weary dad and broken boy, without alteration or apology, in the here 
and now. The relief that comes with such a relationship still surprises me. <coughs> As I've already said, Brown is an atheist, so he doesn't see the face of God in Walker as suggested by Vanier. But he resonates with Vanier's two questions. Do you consider me fully human, and do you love me? Life with Walker has deepened his love. Walker had horribly bad luck in the DNA lottery, but he's also the antidote to our many forms of false consciousness. He never tries to be anyone but himself. He invites us to love him like he is, which is about the best thing that any human being could ever hope to give or receive. And so from this week's epistle in 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. For the book by Ian Brown, See the Boy in the Moon, A Father's Journey to Understand His Extraordinary Son, New York St. Martin's Press, 2009. For books this week, I reviewed Jana Reese. The title, Flunking Sainthood, A Year of Breaking the Sabbath, Forgetting to Pray, and Still Loving My Neighbor. Brewster, Massachusetts, Paraclete Press, 2011. The book is 182 pages. We hear a lot today about the spiritual disciplines. The effect of which, I suspect, is to make Christians feel like a, the, to make the Christian life feel like a very serious endeavor. Jana Reese's contribution to this burgeoning literature takes a different tack. She decided not only to read about the spiritual disciplines, but also to practice them. So for a period of one year, each month she read a spiritual classic and practiced the corresponding discipline. Her whimsical memoir is predicated upon self-effacing humor at her abject failure in almost everything she tried. <clears throat> After an initial chapter that explains how she took the first month to map her year of reading and practices, the remainder of the book devotes one chapter to each month and its discipline. Fasting from sunup to sundown, as in Ramadan, mindfulness of God's presence, Lectio Divina, Simplicity and no shopping, 
centering prayer, Sabbath keeping, gratitude, hospitality, vegetarianism, fixed time prayer, and then finally, generosity. Reese describes how she bombed at all these disciplines. At the end of the book, she acknowledges how artificial and presumptuous it was to think she could learn a difficult practice in a single month, to practice these disciplines alone instead of in community, and to do them without the help of a guide. She also learned a lot about exterior practices and interior motivations, about the letter of the law and its spirit. She experienced discouragements, confusions, and questions. But in a short concluding chapter about visiting her dying father who had abandoned the family long ago, she discovers that she had, in fact, actually changed a little bit that year. And so in the end, she embraces a spirituality of imperfection, or what she calls the wild acceptability of failure itself. <clears throat> the author is Jana Reese. The title, Flunking Sainthood. For movies this week, I review the award-winning Hugo from the year 2011. It's no wonder that Martin Scorsese's Hugo won five Academy Awards. For like the artist, it's a nostalgic film about films that's set in the 1930s Paris. The 12-year-old orphan Hugo lives in the monstrous clock towers of a Paris train station, where he maintains those mechanical monsters. Hugo's also a gadget whiz who's trying to repair an automaton for a mechanical man that is his only connection with his deceased clockmaker father. He steals food from station vendors, pilfers clock parts from shopkeepers, and is hounded by a station inspector played by Sacha Cohen, along with his Doberman dog. There's a heart-shaped key missing to the automaton, which key is provided by his new friend Isabel, who just happens to live with her godfather, the famous filmmaker George Miles. Unknown to any of them is the very special connection that Miles has to the automaton that by the end of the movie links their lives together and helps George to recover long-buried memories about his former life. Hugo, a winner of five Academy Awards. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by the Swedish poet Thomas Tranströmer, a Swedish poet whose poetry and writings have been translated into 60 languages. He was the 2011 winner of the Nobel Peace the, the Nobel Prize in Literature. Thomas Tranströmer, task to be who I am. I ordered out to a big hump of stone as if I were an aristocratic corpse from the Iron Age. The rest are still back in the tent sleeping, 
stretched out like spokes in a wheel. In the tent, the stove is boss. The big snake that swallows a ball of fire and hisses. It is silent out here in the spring night amongst the stones waiting for the dawn. In the cold, I start to fly like a shaman to her body. Some places pale from her swimming suit. The sun shone right on us. The moss was hot. I brush along the side of warm moments, but I can't stay here long. I am whistled back through space. I crawl among the stones back to here and now. Task to be where I am. Even when I am in this solemn and absurd role, I am still the place where creation does a little work on itself. Dawn comes. The sparse tree trunks take on color now. The frost-bitten forest flowers form a silent search party after something that has disappeared in the dark. But to be where I am and to wait. I am full of anxiety, obstinate, confused. Things not yet happened are here and now. I feel that they're just out there, a murmuring mass outside the barrier. They can only slip in one by one. They want to slip in. Why? They do one by one. I am the turnstile. Task to be who I am. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 6th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.